Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, welcome along to a brand new writer's routine. This week we're chatting to the author Zen Cho. I think this is our first uh, official ghost story that we've had on the podcast. Uh, Good timing, what with Halloween, barely a week away. Uh, Zen is a practicing lawyer, writing in her spare time. She's written three novels across genres. And for her new one, Blackwater Sister... It all started with a search for words. I'd go to the OED, Oxford English Dictionary Online, um, which if you live in the UK, often you can get access to via your public library. Um, And um, I'd just go and look up old words, basically. You know, I'd go to the thesaurus and and just look up um, versions of a word that I was interested in. And as part of this exercise, I dug up a word word, um, hag-ridden. So hag as in like you know old woman or witch and then ridden as in riding riding around um and i thought it was really interesting it basically kind of means stressed but it also you know it it kind of came from this idea of of being ridden around by a witch like a witch has cursed you um and it gave me the idea just the word itself of of um a a person like a young person who's hag ridden by her by these ancestors um and these these they'd be ghosts really um and and they'd be stressing her out so so that was the very first seed of the idea there is more on the way with zen cho in this week's writer's routine Yes. Welcome along. It's Writer's Routine. My name's Dan Simpson. This is where we take a look through an author's working day. I hope you've had a word-filled week, be that writing or reading. Something about autumn just makes me want to read. I probably say that every year. You could skim back to this episode, the equivalent of last year, and I'm probably banging on about the same thing. I just hoover through pages when the leaves drop here in the UK. Maybe it's the same for you. Uh, This week, we're chatting to Zen Cho. Her new novel is Blackwater Sister. Uh, It's a ghost story set in Penang, and it's based on ancient Malaysian folklore, Uh, even the language too. We talk about that and what inspired her. Uh, Zen grew up in Malaysia and, and in the States as well, and now she lives in the UK. She's published three novels across genre, uh, been nominated and won many awards for her fantasy writing. The new one is a ghost story. We talk about how working as a lawyer affects the way that she writes novels, also about switching genre and how having a baby was actually pretty helpful to that, uh, and what it's like writing full novels after starting in short stories. Uh, Also, you can hear how a change in font 
made her writing feel more stately. Uh, that's on the way. Uh, and a lot of ghostly stuff this week. Uh, we start, as we always do, with what Zen sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. In the place where I sit down to write. Well, that's two um, different places. So um, often I'm either writing in my study. I'm lucky enough to have a study at home. Um, so I just I have an IKEA desk and, a, and an office chair. Um, and I see, I guess, my monitor, um, the pandan plant that I have on my windowsill, and a, and a very boring suburban street in Birmingham. Um, alternatively, sometimes I repair to the living room. So right now I'm actually sitting on my sofa um, and um, the living room is half colonized by my son's toys. So I'm facing a cheerful looking tent full of balls <laughs> and um, and various versions of um, toy buses. Now, what, what decides where you're writing, if you're upstairs or downstairs? Um, well... They're both on the same floor, actually. So so the main thing that decides it is um, I kind of prefer to chill out on the sofa, even though it's probably bad for my back. It just feels more relaxed. Um, and, and then I put my laptop on a, on a cushion on my lap. But, um, but the study has a door that closes, which is extremely important when you live with a toddler. So if he's around, it's definitely the study. I've found that sometimes authors like a sense of ownership in their workspace now that's you know maybe a bizarre thing to say where possibly you own your home but in the study where you work what is there around you you've got the plant that you mentioned you've got a a, a fairly standard view out your window but what is there around you that says this is mine this is my creative space this is where I write I'm actually moving to the study now so I can (laughs) look around and tell you um so the main thing um, because I lived in London for many years and I, and I, you know, had that kind of classic, I had a, I, I, we lived in a one bed flat as a kind of, um, couple, young couple and, um, and we rented. So I never really had, you know, I wasn't really ever able to kind of put up pictures and things like that. So we do own our own place now. Um, and what's, what's nice about that is in the study, I've, I've got a gallery wall of, um, of kind of art and some of it is, it's just stuff I like. Um, so I have Kate Beaton's Dude Watching with the Brontes, one of my favorite comic strips of hers. Um, but it, I And some work by Tova Janssen, who wrote the Moomin series. But I also have quite a lot of art that is um, related to my writing. So I've got a piece by a friend called Lekine, um, and And she um, did a painting which I used as the cover of my sh- my first book, a short story collection that I self-published, which is being re-released this year, actually, by a small press in the US called Small Beer Press. Um, but I've got that on the wall. I've got, um, I've got other pieces. So I've got some fan art from my first novel, Sorcerer to the Crown, which is a kind of historical fantasy. So some of the characters from um, that are on the wall. I've also got... Um, so kind of the jacket for Sorcerer to the Crown, it came out in hardcover in the UK and my um, UK publisher gave me, I guess, kind of when they first printed off the jacket and it's and it's foiled. So I framed that and that's on the wall. So that's kind of my, I guess that's kind of my mark that this is this is my space and, and, and kind of a reminder of, of, I guess, what I've what I've done so far. So that's the inspiration. What is there that's practical for you there in your in your study? So, I mean, post-it notes, notepads, whiteboards, brainstorms, all of that kind of stuff. How does it, if I were to walk in, for instance, would I have any clue what story you were writing? 
Uh, no, you you wouldn't. But um, I I that is all either going to go so brainstorming that kind of thing all goes either into the computer or into various notebooks. But I'm I'm always sort of mislaying my notebooks, and you know I've got I've got just loads and loads of them. So um, notebooks aren't super reliable, and I, I I also kind of like to be able to find things really quickly on my computer because I do most of my well I do all my writing on my computer really um, so I often if I've if you know that kind of classic piece of advice to make sure you've got a little notebook on you so you can take down ideas if you're out and about and you have an idea I just I just put them on my phone you know in in, in Evernote like a notes app um, so that's all fairly locked away uh, you do all your writing on the computer. Tell me, what software are you writing on, and have you got any font opinions? Um, well, it 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 all it's all fairly variable. The the kind of main set of software I use, um, well, Microsoft Word obviously is is kind of a classic. Um, I I will use that for anything up to kind of novelette length so up uh, up to kind of 15,000 words it goes in, into Microsoft Word if it if it's going beyond that if it's go and and particularly if it's it's novella length from sort of 30,000 words onward i i use scrivener um uh i have a macbook so i just find scrivener's um you know it is specifically for kind of long form projects and it's it's quite good for having you know organizing lots of different notes and um and i find it just easier with with kind of the complexity of what you need for a longer project um when i'm revising though um i do a slightly odd thing where um what what i do is once i've completed say a novel draft on scrivener i'll then export it as a microsoft word document maybe do a round of revision then turn it in when i then get editorial notes back um, I will then um, map the book in Excel. Um, so kind of do do a kind of reverse outline where you kind of put chapter one, this is what happens in scene one, this is what happens in scene two, um, you know, in, in a kind of table in Excel. And I use that to kind of navigate um, the draft and, and, and um, plan my edits. Um, so often at the revision stage, I'll end up kind of with an unholy combination of maybe Scrivener, Microsoft Word, and Excel kind of all open all at once um, and, and kind of jumping between the three of those. I'm utterly obsessed with the different quirks that tend to crop up through editing. At, at what point did you start to do this trifecta of moving it to Word, but then also plotting it out again across uh, Excel? Well, I think that the the reverse outline or kind of chapter map, or whatever you want to call it, is is just a really useful tool for planning edits. Um, and I do that actually quite early in the process. I, I often do it, you know, when I finished my first draft. I'll, I'll then go through it, through it, and just outline it again and kind of work out what's actually happened. Because I, I outline before I start writing the first draft, but invariably the story always develops as I'm writing it and it changes and, you know, it departs from my initial outline. So um, so then once I have that kind of chapter map that then enables me to to then navigate the, the manuscript and, and kind of work out, right, chapter two, I need to change. So I'll, I'll maybe put some text in red there to say, this is what needs to happen instead in the next draft, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I just found, I don't, I can't remember when I decided that Excel was the best way to, to embody this chapter map. I just found it was kind of, it, it was kind of more flexible than, um, than either 
you know, Microsoft Word or or Scrivener for that purpose. Um, and actually, I, I didn't say what, what font I'm using at the moment, but at the moment I'm drafting a lot in Georgia. Hang on, let me see Georgia. Georgia's quite a stately one, isn't it? I've seen Georgia before. Yes, it's quite. A, it's a very nice font. It is like a serif. Yeah, a serif font, kind of round, not not too sort of narrow. Um, I don't know. It just gives me a, a feeling of authority. I often feel my first draft is just a mess, but since I started drafting in Georgia, I, I sort of feel you know it it it, it kind of makes my prose look better. <laughs> uh, what's interesting? You also mentioned about the difference between uh, Word and Scrivener. Uh, why, I guess, reverse engineering what you were saying about long-form projects, why do you just use Word for something shorter, something that's 15,000 words? Is, is it simply because it's it's the most accessible way for you to splurge ideas onto? Yeah, I think for shorter fiction, I just don't need all the functionality of Scrivener. Like, I find it's almost too bulky, you know. Um, and, and Scrivener... I mean, I find it a bit annoying in the sense that, you know, because of how it works, it, the files that you produce with Scrivener are, you know, Scrivener is in a particular format. Whereas if I if I draft something in Word, um, you know, that's that's a really accessible format. Well, firstly, you just open it and you the screen, you know, the blank document is there um, to to write into. Um, but also, and and that means, you know, when you save as as a doc, you know kind of um, file that's that's something that most people can open on their computers but it also means that you can kind of open it on your phone if you need to you know with the microsoft word app and sort of tap things in scrivener does have a mobile app but i've never i do have it but i've never really been able to kind of make it work for me i get one of those days um because i i'm fortunate enough to to work part-time so fridays are my work working days um as as a writer um so I'll, I'll get up probably not too early because i'm not really um i'm not really someone uh for early mornings um you know the the classic advice is to do your kind of creative work or writing before you do anything else and, or get distracted by emails but i never really managed to follow that advice um i generally actually um by when i get to my desk and i, I won't sort of rush if i uh, rush to it because um you know, I'm working the rest of the week, so it's kind of a nice, um, nice kind of time for me. Um, you know, I'll I'll go through my emails, and it'll be stuff like like this morning. It's stuff like, um, you know, issuing invoices for events I'm doing, or um, responding to kind of approaches to for for kind of appearances. You know, negotiating fees. Um, you know, responding to eight my agents' emails, um, responding to to fan mail, uh, and just getting my inbox back into some sort of order. Um, and then when that's done, I'll I'll kind of turn my right mind to writing. Um, and yeah, and and you know, I'll have so I guess I I spent the morning of that. I guess essentially ate some lunch, um, spent some time on social media as well, um, and then I'm. Before before I started doing this podcast was um was kind of think, thinking and outlining uh, about and, and outlining a, um, a project that I'm working on. So so what happens next? So then um well that that will just take I guess take up the rest of the afternoon and then um I will then uh, go and pick up my son from nursery at about five o'clock and then we'll have dinner and then it'll be. Um, fun times with the toddler until probably nine o'clock we put him to bed hopefully at eight but he doesn't usually let us go until nine um and then from nine o'clock if I've had a writing day I'll just you know the rest of the evening I'll just chill out I might read a book I might like watch watch something 
Um, I might mess around on the internet. Um, but actually, most nights, um, so you know, um, whether it's the weekends when during the day I'll be looking after, you know, spending time with my kid and and family, or you know, during weekdays when I'll I'll be at my day job. Um, so if, if that's usually the case, and in the it's the evening when I'll I'll try to do a bit of writing because I I do like especially if I got a, if I'm actually in the process of writing things like if I'm in the middle of a novel or a short story, I like to just do a little bit every day just to kind of keep in touch with that world and, and keep in touch with the flow of the story. Um, so even if I'm only able to get there fairly late, um, you know, I'll just make sure that I do a couple of sentences before I go to bed. What constitutes a good writing day for you? What are you happy with getting done? Is there a word count in mind? Um, when I'm, and so I'm, I'm not under contract for anything at the moment. When I'm under contract, I've got a deadline. I'll have worked out um, how much I need to do per day. So, And I do calculate it in terms of word count. Um, and I use something for that called Pacemaker, which is um, I find just really useful. Um, and, and I think you can have up to kind of three projects on it for free, on a free plan. Um, and that just enables you to kind of set you know, your, your total word count that you're aiming for, the kind of deadline you're aiming for, and then it, and kind of how you want to work. Like, do you want to do a little bit, you know, do, do a consistent amount every day, or do you want to do more on certain days um, of the week? Um, and do you have holidays coming? And you can kind of block out your schedule and it'll actually just tell you, right, you need to be doing 580 words per day for the next six months. And then you'll, you know, you'll finish a draft that's as long as you need it to be. So that I find really, really useful. Um, and so when I've got a project that is under deadline, that's that's what I I do. You know, I'll, I guess a good writing day will be I hit my word count for the day, and I know that I know that's sorted. Um, at the moment, um, I'm not under contract. I don't have to, any fixed deadlines, um, and I actually I'm actively avoiding them because I've been under contract for the past five years <laughs> um quite enjoying the change um and because i have a day job i don't i kind of don't need to kind of chase the contract for for the money necessarily so um i guess for me at the moment a successful writing day is a bit different so it's something like well clearing my inbox is actually actually you know genuinely something that that makes me feel productive and is genuinely useful but also just i think making a bit of progress on on um, one of the projects I'm working on, you know, whether it's having had kind of a good idea or, you know, ha- like making sure I've kind of understood the setting better, um, you know, having written a couple, a, a scene maybe, um, just making sure that I, I'm kind of making progress. So when you're in writing mode, when you are under contract, um, when do you like to get that work down? Have you figured out that you're a morning person or how does that work? Um, I mean, the, the the truth is, as um, someone who's a parent of a small child and has a day job, um, it, the writing will get done when it needs to get done. So, it, it, you know, I'm I'm not precious about the time when it gets done. Um, I'm definitely not as much of a morning person, but I, I will say that it is easier to do thinking work and writing work in the morning instead of, you know, after 9pm when you've had a full day of work and childcare, you're generally a bit more tired, but it, it'll get done anyway, uh, regardless. Um, so it, it, I guess my ideal would be, um, yeah, to have um, a kind of decent amount of time for it, um, probably like during the day rather than the in the evening, but I'm not kind of, I'm not kind of um, strict about it or, or, you know, kind of fussy about when, when I get the time to write. How naturally does that come to you, the ability to 
turn off and on your I guess your creativity with writing or or is this something that you've had to train yourself to work around work and uh, toddlers and everything else it's definitely something I've had to train myself to do. Um, like I, I, I've always known I wanted to be a writer from very, you know, as a very young child. Um, I was writing little stories from kind of. I think my first story was about, you know, I wrote when I was age six. Um, and um, and as a teenager, I wrote a lot of fanfic. Um, so it's it was something that was always really important to me. But that um, I didn't. I wouldn't say that I worked out, you know, kind of how to do it as a habit until I was in my mid twenties, and I. Um, and it was actually after I started working and I, I sort of thought, well, you know, I, I, I could kind of do this for the rest of my life. Um, and actually, I, I'm, I'm speaking now, um, you know, having been published for te- uh, 10 years, um, I, you know, as in I sold my first short story 10 years ago, um, I'm, I'm quite happy to have a day job. But, um, you know, I just said to myself then, well, you've ca- you kind of have to work out how you do this writing thing or you'll never do it basically and what worked for me um, although I no longer really do it was just deciding to to just write every day and just see if 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 that helped Um, and I think and it was really really beneficial because I I I didn't necessarily have a word count or if I did have a a target word count it would be a very low one maybe 200 words per day 300 words per day maybe a sentence depending on you know if it had been a long day at work but I think just like doing it every day kind of gives you the space to fail almost which I think is really important in any creative pursuit um and just the rhythm of it it, it, you you know it just becomes yeah it becomes habit after after time so so that that was definitely something um I, I learned over time um and I think has been, I think the best thing I've ever done for myself as a writer was, was deciding to make it into a habit. I think the structure of, of legal life has been really helpful to me, actually. Um, I mean, to my writing career. So, so one element is kind of the creative element or the, you know, your approach to writing projects. So one thing that actually helped me realize that I could write a novel because for a long time I was writing short fiction and sort of not really sure how to make that leap to longer form projects. Um, But, you know, at work I helped, (laughs) this was when I was a trainee solicitor and I I was supporting on, on a big, kind of a huge case, absolutely massive case that my firm was doing. And, um, and one of the small bits of work I was, you know, the, my, my small contribution was supporting on, on the completion of a witness statement that we were doing. And the witness statement ran to 80,000 words. So it's literally kind of the length of a novel in itself. Um, and I didn't draft it, but, you know, I saw kind of senior lawyers drafting it and I kind of saw how the sausage was made in a way. And I thought, well, if I, and I, I could imagine doing it myself. And I, I thought if I could, if I can't imagine myself doing an 80,000 word witness statement, then there's no reason why I couldn't write a novel that's also 80,000 words. It just needs, you know, this level of kind of organization and kind of, you know, and, and perse- perseverance, I guess. Uh, perseverance? I don't, <laughs> I'm not sure how you pronounce yeah, that. Yeah, perseverance, that's right. Perseverance, <laughs> that's right. And then, um, and so, so that's one way that, um, I guess being a lawyer has helped. And I think that, I think that kind of rigor and that kind of structure and the practice that's kind of thinking through fairly complex matters and trying to make them in trying to organize them in a way that where it's kind of reasonably accessible to your client. That's actually been quite helpful to me as a, as a writer in my creative writing. Um, And then on on the other hand, you're with your other question, um, lack of structure. I, I, I think there, I suspect there are very few people actually whom a complete, 
uh, lack of structure would suit. Um, you know, that's something I've heard time and time again from people who've gone full time with writing where, you know, when you're when you've got a day job and a family and all, all this sort of thing, you know, you're constantly thirsting for time to write. You're desperate for it. And then when you actually go full time, you might actually find, oh, actually, I'm not more I'm not significantly more productive than I was previously because I I do think with writing there's a kind of upper limit to how much you can do per day. Um interestingly I I have a, a friend who is a comic artist and a writer and she said, you know, I can draw I can draw for eight hours a day. That's not really a problem. I mean, you know, it's tiring, but I can do that. But I couldn't write for eight hours a day. You know, she said uh, the most kind of writing work I can really do per day is maybe three hours worth, um, which I which I've always seen kind of you know I've, I've I've I can see the point of because it is kind of I don't know it's just it's just different from other kinds of uh, other kinds of work. Um, so a lot of my friends who write full time, I don't even think they spend you know they don't spend eight hours a day writing necessarily um at least half their day will be taken up with something else it'll be you know sorting out your emails it'll be if you're self-publishing it'll be sorting um, marketing it'll be all the other aspects of the job that aren't just writing a story um so i think from my perspective um if i if i had kind of those uh, kind of if I had unlimited time um, and I was just told, right, you can do whatever you want or that you can, you know, write all day, I would actually probably structure it in such a way where I'd have a few hours in the day for writing. Um, but then the rest of the day would be probably dedicated to something else. It might be, you know, admin, it might be, it might be another sort of fairly kind of low key job. Um, but it wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't actually want to be spending eight hours where, you know, I was told you've got to be producing word, words for eight hours straight. Cause I just don't think that would be productive for me. I'd like to touch again on what you said about learning from other solicitors working on long form uh, projects, 80,000 words, and how you learn to extend a story out that long. When you've been writing short stories for so long and you think, right, I need to, I need to get more words out of this. It's not just a case of stretching out an idea. It's knowing what to put in an 80,000 word story. Um, how did you think about other things that you could add to plot and other beats that you could hit that maybe you had never considered before when you were only writing things that were say 15,000 words mm, it's a good question I think what in a way ideas aren't really the problem because once you're into a project that long you know as as you keep writing you it, it, it's fairly natural to create more complications i think but but actually as even as i say that i know that i that's this is me speaking from the vantage point of having written three novels now um and and kind of countless more drafts that have never seen the light of day that were novel length but just didn't work on some level um you know and and then published a novella and all, and all this sort of thing so so I, so it's it's you know i in terms of of where i am and and in, in, as a novelist in terms of craft i'm a lot further on than i was Obviously, when when I was just writing short fiction, I hadn't really worked out how to make that leap. What actually really helped me, um, because before I published my, before I sold my first novel, Sorcerer to the Crown, I wrote two different novels before that. Well, I call them novels. They were novel length, but they weren't really novels because they didn't really work structurally. Um, and I really, really struggled with plot and pacing. Um, and I think what what kind of made the difference of Sorcerer to the Crown and meant it was publishable was that I decided after the second kind of novel length thing had failed, I was looking around for the next story to write. Um, and I thought, 
okay, I really struggle with structuring something that's 100,000 words. So why don't I steal a structure from something else? You know, like, why don't I, I go for a genre that has, um, and not meaning this word in any kind of derogatory sense, but a formula, you know, in the, in the way that, say, a mystery novel will have, have a formula or a thriller will have a formula. Um, and, and the genre I picked was the Regency romance. Um, so, so romance novels obviously have a formula. You know, you have the characters meet, they fall in love, um, problems occur, you know, they, but they get together in the end. Um, and um, I'd always enjoyed the Regency romances of Georgette Hare in particular. And so that was a kind of, and she's written enough to be a genre in herself. Um, and so that was a kind of particular genre I drew from because um, that then meant that I had a kind of, I had these story beats kind of prepared for me. And then because I, I enjoy fantasy and that's just something I think seemed to instinctively write quite a lot. Um, that's then what I added to the idea. Um, you know, I was like, okay, but it'll be in a fantasy version of, of, of the UK. And, um, and yeah, so, so the, so the, Sorcerer to the Crown draws a lot of inspiration from these um, from these Regency romances, and you've got all these kind of classic kind of set se- sequences in, in um, Regency romances, like the ball where something you know something important happens. Um, so, so I have that as well, or you know something happens that causes the protagonists to be in close proximity. You know, maybe they travel together or they stay in an inn together. So I also have that. So, so that's what helped me kind of deciding. Okay, I'm going to steal the structure from somewhere else. Um, and that helped me work out what plot beats to hit. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. More with Zen in just a sec. Just popping up here, reminding you, if you're enjoying the show, if you've learned anything along the way that has helped the way that you tell stories, you can let us know. You can kind of pay it back at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Thank you so much. If you've got involved, I'm going to do another bulk um, mail out session soon, if those are the right words. Listen, uh, you'll get our eternal thanks. You'll also get some merch. You've got bonus content if you fancy it as well. And there is a way for your book to sponsor this show. 
if you've written something, if it's not really got the hype that you think your immense work deserves, you can let us plug it for you. The whole episode uh, dedicated to the name of your work. I will run through the whole thing. I'll give it as big a plug as I can. Uh, just get involved. Help us out. Patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Become a backer over there. Let's get back to it with Zen Cho talking about her new novel, Black Water Sister. It's a ghost story seeped in ancient Malaysian folklore. We talk about how much she knows about what's coming next. Also how she plays with language, uh, ancient language in ghost stories too. And we pick things up uh, all about planning the new book. How does she figure out her ideas right at the start? What helps her with that? This I use Scrivener for um, because Scrivener has, um, let me just go, it has a kind of corkboard function um, where you can, you know, you can look at what it is, it's, it's, it's a folder. And then in the folder, you can have multiple text files um, that you can write in directly. But you can also view all of these text files as um, basically cards on a, a corkboard, which I find really helpful. I mean, it's, it's the, the equivalent to like a lot of writers have this like in real life where they'll have an actual notice board and they'll have post-it notes, whatever, as, as you mentioned. And you can kind of write, you know, this is what's going to happen in the scene, the headline point. And then you you can organize your scenes that way. You can move them around. Um, and um, and then you can maybe you can color code them. You can say, right, one character's arc, you know, it's all going to be in purple. One character's storyline is going to be all in green. And you can kind of do that in a virtual way in, in Scrivener. So I find that really helpful. So that's usually what I do. I'll, I'll just have a bunch of notes. Um, and I might have a couple of text files in which I just kind of splurge all my thoughts about the world and the characters and then the plot will the plot outlining will come when i've got i feel like i've got enough of a sense of the characters in the world and then i start you know kind of making notes on these on these um cards and say it'll be you know scene one could be you know just here's the ghost scene two um she talks to her mum. scene three and 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 then when i've built up enough of these cards i feel okay i've got kind of a plot that's around the time i can start writing so what comes first for you before anything else? What's the first ember that normally comes into your head that you think, okay, there might be a story here? Well, often it's kind of a premise, right? Or, or just an idea, the, the spark. Um, what I found, what, what I need in order to kind of think, right, I could actually write this is, is, is kind of two things. So first is a character dynamic very often. Um, I, I often write odd couples and it's not necessarily, you know, Sometimes they're romances, um, but sometimes they are just, you know, people, two people who know together, each other and have to work together. So in True Queen, my second novel, it was, it was a pair of sisters um, who are contrasts to each other. Um, and then in Blackwater Sister, it's the main character who's a young young woman and her, her dead grandmother, who's a ghost, um, haunting her. And, and that kind of dynamic and that tension is kind of what... Um, drives or gives a story interest to me because then I want to explore that relationship and that character dynamic. But the the other thing that I that I then need need in order to start the story is um the world. So that the setting and it needs to be something that's interesting but a setting that makes me want to explore it. Um so with Blackwater Sister it's it's the setting of the city of Penang in Malaysia, but like a, a version of Penang where it's, you know, populated by ghosts and gods. Um 
and it's seen specifically through the eyes of the protagonist, who's essentially Asian American. She's grown up in America. She she her parents are from Malaysia, but it's not a country she knows super well. So it's that kind of idea of exploring that particular viewpoint that was interesting to me. Um, yeah, so it's that combination. Well, let's unpack that then. So the new novel, as you say, Blackwater Sister. Just tell us about the first moment that the idea for this story came into your head. What was the very first ember you had for this book? Um, so this comes from when I was researching Sorcerer to the Crown. Um, and Sorcerer to the Crown is, is set in 1800s London. Um, and I was quite careful to use sort of a light form of of a regency tone, so kind of a fairly archaic language, um, because I wanted firstly to, for it to feel like a historical novel, but also I wanted people to feel right. This is this is a version of historical Britain that that didn't really exist. It's 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 something different. It's new. It's fantastical. And one way that I I used to convey that was um, I'd go to the OED, Oxford English Dictionary Online, um, which if you live in the UK, often you can get access to via your public library. Um, and um, I'd just go and look up old words, basically. You know, I'd go to the thesaurus I'd, I, and, and just look up um, versions of a word that I was interested in. And as part of this exercise, I dug up a word, a word um, hag-ridden. So hag as in like, you know, old woman or witch, and then ridden as in riding, riding around. Um, and I thought it was really interesting. It basically kind of means stressed, but it also, you know, it, it kind of came from this idea of, of being ridden around by a witch, like a witch has cursed you. Um, and it gave me the idea, just the word itself, of, of um a person like a young person who's hag ridden by her by these ancestors um and these these they'd be ghosts really um and and they'd be stressing her out so so that was the very first seed of the idea and then what comes next what comes you kind of outlined it generally but specifically with this story what do you do next before you get to the point where you start typing your first sentence? Um, so the other thing that came along that then made this idea, um, you know, kind of into what what it be- then became with the Blackwater Sister was I read a book called um, The Way That Lives in the Heart, which is a work of anthropology, academic anthropology, by an anthropologist called Jean D. Bernardi. Um, and what she did in the 1980s, she went to Penang in Malaysia and did field research into um, the practice of Chinese popular religion and particular um, particularly spirit spirit mediums. Um, and it's just a really interesting book and just kind of very rich with kind of story and detail. And this is the religious tradition that I grew up with, but my parents were very superstitious. So they never really explained anything to me. You know, I was just asked to go to the temple and then do these things and like not ask too many questions. So what reading that book gave me was an intellectual framework for these beliefs that I'd grown up around. Um, and what what then happened when I read the book was I thought, okay, there's, there's definitely a novel in this. This is something I want to explore in fiction. And so that kind of combined with um, with the kind of hag-ridden idea to give me kind of the basic story for Blackwater Sister. And then I did all the planning that I talked about where, you know, I opened a Scrivener. I, I started a new Scrivener project. You know, I, I put in all these ideas about kind of the characters and the, the world. Um, and then I started kind of hashing out the plot using these kind of cards. You've got your plot then slightly sorted before you you start writing uh imagine that your your writing experience is a bit like a road map um at what point are you seeing things that are coming clear to you through the windscreen and also how often do your characters try and veer you down side streets perhaps away from the 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 place the the route map that you'd already had um i can't think of a 
specific um I can't think of a specific instance where my characters kind of took over in that way with this project. Um, but I, I think um, it's partly because I guess with my outlines, they are fairly basic. You know, I try to have a, a, a broad shape for at least like maybe the beginning up to like maybe the middle-ish. Often I have a decent idea of what happens at the end. Um, but, you know, in the middle, there's going to be these vast tracts of unknown space. And I think leaving that that kind of... Um, vagueness. So, so I've got a friend, for example, who will outline in incredible detail. She'll literally spend months, and it'll be every single beat she'll have planned out. You know, it'll be right. The characters have now gone to, into the spaceship, and then they're going to be attacked. But I need to know who's attacks them, and then how do they then defeat? You know, it's, it's really, really detailed. And so she'll have every single plot beat planned out and her character journeys and then she'll write it and then she'll write it really quickly because she knows everything that happens she'll like finish the draft in about three months and it'll be a very clean draft um but essentially all her her outlining is kind of what the first draft is for me so i'm a lot looser when it comes to outlining because i i just know that if i did, did it in that amount of detail you know i I couldn't really follow it because I, I don't really know if a scene will work, for example, until I've actually written it out and seen if it seen if it actually fits what I think the characters will do. And so so there's a there's an inherent amount of flexibility in my in my version of an outline. Um and um and it does often feel, even though I have kind of cards down that say this is gonna happen at this time, um you know, I don't really feel any conviction that it is going to happen because I, I will only know if it works when I've written the previous bit in a way. Um, so it is a little bit like, you know, I, I'm writing, I kind of broadly know I'm going with a particular scene, but it's, um, I, what's the metaphor that a lot of people use? It's like, I've got, you know, I'm wearing one of those caps with the lights <laughs> and they kind of illuminate just like the bit of the tunnel that's ahead, but not all of the tunnel. Um, is that and, and as you move along, you see more and more of, of what's coming, but um, you only ever get kind of a small amount, you know, of, of what's ahead um, at, a, at a particular time. You know, I, I, I wasn't designing the story to be scary. Um, so um, to the extent it's scary, that's kind of a side effect from what I wanted to achieve. And, and what I wanted to achieve was a, a sense of these, that these gods and ghosts and spirits in the book are real and are serious. And and the reason I wanted to achieve that is because, you know, the, the religious practices depicted in the book are genuine, you know, they're real religious practices, they're living religious practices. Um, and the attitude depicted towards the spirits um, are, are real attitudes. They're, they're how my friends and family feel. They're how I would probably feel if I was in a, you know, in a room in Malaysia at night and had just been told <laughs> that there was a spirit outside my window. Um, I wouldn't feel too good about that. So, um, so you know, I wanted it to be true to life in that sense. Um, and I wanted you as the reader to, um, to really feel when you're reading that this, um, to kind of... I don't know, to share that, we'll enter that worldview. And and in order for that to work, I had to, you know, what I really want to achieve was this sense of the mystery and the power and the unpredictability of the spiritual world. Um, and I suppose what how I achieved that was just to, just to have the characters, like to convey that through the characters, like, you know, just the main character, um, you know, she feels that kind of fear or she feels that uncertainty, that she feels the skepticism and then she gets convinced. Um, and so that's that's kind of what I was trying to to get at. Um, so I guess I, I kind of just immersed myself in that mindset, and that that the hope is that if you if you are feeling it yourself as the writer, that that can, gets conveyed through the writing. 
Now, this might be a stupid question to ask a writer, someone who practices in words, but how much did you think about the specific words that were on the page first time round? So before you've gone back and you've done your Excel uh, spreadsheeting, how much were you thinking about very specifically the the next word? Um, I think about them a lot, but maybe probably not as much as, as say, a literary fiction writer would do. Um, but I can get very, um, I can get very hung up on um, the right word or the right sentence. So I actually, I, I actively try to to resist that that um, kind of internal pressure. Um, because the goal is to kind of enter a bit of a flow state where you're kind of writing and you're not really worrying about um, you're not really worrying about it because you know it's it's kind of coming to you and if you're just worrying about if you're worrying about the sentences it, it that often will be kind of a, a block to your subconscious um, but I, so but it is a balance because it's it's a balance between not kind of blocking yourself but then also finding the right voice so for me finding the right voice to tell a story is really really important so if you read Sorcerer to the Crown for example and you read Blackwater Sister they are written in very different sort of registers uh, and that's entirely deliberate because you know it's it's the voice that suits the world Sorcerer to the Crown is set in 1800s London um, Blackwater Sister is set in 21st century Malaysia so and the the viewpoint characters are very different as well. So I, I think the language, the voice in which you tell a story tells the reader so much and, and primes the reader for, for the kind of story it is. Um, and and it, it tells the reader kind of what the characters are like. So, so all these things are just really, really important. So with the Blackwater Sister... The voice came quite easily, um, but it is a very distinct voice. You know, it's this kind of, um, I would say the narration is this kind of millennial um, kind of American English. And then a lot of the dialogue actually is in what we call Malaysian English or Manglish. Um, when, when Jess talks to her, her, her relatives or the locals, um, which is kind of a mixed version of, of kind of English where um, you it borrows a lot of the kind of grammatical structures and words from other languages like Malay or Chinese or Tamil. Um, and I, I grew up speaking Manglish. Um, so, so again, that was really important to me to include because that's just how the characters would speak in real life. How easy is it for you to reset that language and that voice uh, one book to the next? Well, there was quite a big gap between me writing my um, kind of historical fantasies and um, and the the Blackwater Sister because I had a baby in between. So in a way, that was quite helpful. <laughs> it it's um, I think some voices come more naturally than others. Although I really enjoyed writing in a kind of eighteen hundreds, you know, kind of faux eighteen hundreds voice for Sorcerer to the Crown and the True Queen. Um, that was something that needed a bit more work. So I had to kind of actively seek out books from that era and avoid reading, you know, um, overly modern kind of books um, to, to in order to kind of stay in that register. Whereas um, Blackwater Sister, because it's like a, it's it's from the point of view of a, a woman in the 21st century with Chinese Malaysian heritage, which I also am, what is much closer to my natural voice. So it's it's very easy. It was very easy to stay in that voice. And that is it for this week with Zen Cho. Uh, you can get a copy of the new book, Black Water Sister, using the link in the episode notes wherever you're listening. And it's over at writersroutine.com as well. While you're there, you can get in touch with us. You can also do that as a review on uh, Apple Podcasts and by following us on Twitter. We are at writerspod there. 
Uh, make sure you follow us as well wherever you get your shows because we're doing bite-sized routines again, the random ones, uh, in the middle of the week just to give you some inspiration of your flagging a little bit. Just a very short chunk from the 180 episodes that we've done so far. We'll have another one for you next week. Uh, and we'll have a brand new episode as well. We're with Joe Thomas, the author of the Sao Paulo Quartet. They are novels of social awareness. And his new one is Bent. It's out right now. You can hear all about it next week on the show with Joe Thomas. I will see you then. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.